Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. Well, we're excited to be here today. Another episode of the Midnight Founders Podcast. Today, oh, we're yes, lucky we're enough to be guys. here with Nate Walkingshaw from Taurus. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Post holidays. I'm really glad you're here. Yeah, it's so good. Yep. <laughs> So uh, to get started, um, I've known you for a little while, but let's give the audience a 30-second pitch on what Taurus is working on. Yeah, so Taurus, I mean, we're a renewable energy uh, storage and management business. Uh, The mission of the company is to empower individuals and communities to become their own renewable utility provider. And then the vision really is we're an engineering-based organization, so we hold ourselves accountable to performance. So our products really need to decarbonize and save people um, 60 to 80 percent within the first three years of use of our product uh, to electrify their home uh, through energy storage and management products. So, Nate, are you talking? Th- I'm assuming this means solar and geothermal. Yeah. And it's not. I, not that. Okay. No, yeah. So we're not. We're not a solar company at all. We're, oh. we're an energy storage and management. Most people think solar first. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of think storage first. And the reason why you want to think about storage is there's a lot of um, really positive knock-on effects thinking about storing energy at your house. A lot of people also are like really focused on carbon intensity, which is why they kind of start with solar. But if you think about energy storage as a great replacement to an internal con- like combustion generator, you can get the same value. So emergency backup, like right out of the gate. So you can use it as emergency backup. A lot of people outside of the state of Utah, like California or even the East Coast, utilities deregulating. And so you can save a lot of money. In fact, you can arbitrage power. So you can sip off the grid at wholesale rates and then resell it at retail rates in the middle of the day. Uh, so that's <laughs> interesting. A, that's so, amazing. So, so like, like and there's a, a whole um, tailwind on energy trading, uh, which is going to be really cool when, when we really de- deregulate the whole entire United States. I think we'll... I think that's, you know, it's a prediction in the future, but it is coming. Um, so it's a secondary market forming naturally. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then um, there's a lot of really cool uh, things to think about. Like, I guess I go right into like the, the literal example, like little electrons coming from the grid. The grid, large-scale utility is doing a really good job at trying to decarbonize their own grid. And so if you think about green electrons is good, you know, and these dark black electrons is bad, the grid is starting, like Utah's grid, 40% of our grid on a day-to-day basis is actually coming from renewables. And so a lot of the energy storage that you're putting in your battery um, is, is actually really good. On top of that, you add solar, you, then you can layer in basically free electrons in your battery that you can deploy for time of use, uh, demand charges, uh, or emergency backup. Uh, and that has nothing to do with solar. I mean, solar... solar provides a tremendous amount of value, but solar is really 4.4 hours a day. And then depending on where we are in the season um, and how well, you know, you can charge, you know, your infrastructure, your battery is all dependent on mother nature's uh, cooperation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and we've taken like a ton of the automation, like the energy operating system of the home is super important to us. So load shifting and automating and time of use and demand charges across the United States at those different intervals with like good and bad, um, you know, clean energy, 
like we've kind of already accounted for that, like through the operating system of Taurus. How much does, uh, like the cost of, I know it's different during peak hours, but how, what, what is that disparity? Yeah. I mean, it's big. Um, so like in, in California, as an example, well, this is Utah has blocks and Utah doesn't really matter because it's 11 cent, you know, per kilowatt hour. It's, it's like pretty inexpensive compared yeah, it's, to everywhere so, else. It's right? super, super cheap here. I, I do even know that it's inexpensive. It kind of gets dismissed, but there are a lot of other primacy goals that customers care about than just super cheap power, like emergency backup. But to answer your question, California, like 19, it can go from 19 to 48 cents. Wow. A, there's a big flex. Um, and if you look at electric vehicle um, charging times, time of use, uh, those are those are super expensive, like 87 cents, 86 cents. You know, um, it, it's very, very expensive. Texas, as you guys, maybe you guys know this or not, but for the first time in history in Texas on the wholesale market went to $5,000 per megawatt hour. So to put that in context, um, their regular base rates are 26 bucks. Wow. Uh, what do you mean? 20, uh, versus like 20, the 19 to 48 cents so that, in California? So the, the 19 to 48 cents per kilowatt, per kilowatt hour, hour, that's just mm-hmm. to a homeowner. Okay. Okay. If you go to like, and so it's a thousand, uh, I'll try and get the math right here. But if you look at a thousand kilowatt hours, mm-hmm. that's one megawatt hour and one megawatt hour right, is in, in Texas normally is like right around 26 bucks. Okay. And you can take a thousand kilowatt hours and divide that by 30 because an average household uses about 30 kilowatt hours of, of energy storage, you know, in a 24 hour period. So you can think about now homeowners in Texas didn't get affected by that. The wholesale market did, which is why, you know, everyone is running to Texas right now because you can make a lot of money in energy arbitrage. You can just set up battery energy storage right at a substation, sip off the grid at wholesale rates at 26, and then resell it at peak the next day for up to five grand. So you're almost doubling your money. I mean, it's crazy. Well, it's way more than that. It's like it's, yeah. it's $26 <laughs> per megawatt hour to $5,000 yeah. yeah. per megawatt hour. Oh, my goodness. Oh my so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. And, no, and they don't seem to, like, are they going to start regulating that? They, or I what, mean, what, I mean what, the, they kind of designed it, uh, what I think is super brilliant, and this is very probably contentious, but um, Texas di- kind of did this on purpose to get the free market to run to Texas to help build their infrastructure because they needed to electrify. Um, they needed to decarbonize. And so what they did here is they got the private sector involved, which is brilliant. And then we all ran down there to provide all of these critical pieces of this infrastructure to help scale their grid. And, and frankly, it is on the a, consumer dime essentially. Yeah. And it's working, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's working in a really cool way. And then you couple that with federal incentives, right? So federal incentive programs right now are amazing. So you get 30% like right off. So the consumer does. And then also large scale utility. So a commercial or a CNI, like this building that we're in right now, you guys get a 30% incentive off this building if you did energy storage and solar. Then you get state and local incentive and demand response programs plus the Inflation Reduction Act. So it is very affordable for consumers and business owners. And then in an open, so we're not, we're not deregulated, we're regulated. Uh, but when you, if Utah were to deregulate, it's a, it's a, it's a really fun, fun business model for, for business owners and, and for people like tourists too. So Europe's already doing this and they're absolutely, they're crushing it. You know, Europe is, is doing, they're, they're moving at a much faster pace because they deregulated 
created energy trading for individual consumers and business owners, right? And then they subsidize the cost to expand the resilience of their grid, which, which we have to do with electric vehicle and coal plant takedown right now in the United States. Same problems in Germany, same problems in Europe. You know, you've got, you know, fossil fuels with fully electrified plus a massive adoption rate of electric vehicles. So you have to think about the world totally differently than the way we've thought about it today. And, you know, the U.S. is like a decade behind, uh, but we're, I think we're rapidly... Um, Bridging that gap. Yeah, we are. So we, we had five, like 15 years ago, five deregulated states. And then it was 11. And this last year, you guys, 26 deregulated states. So is Utah wow. on its way to deregulate? I don't know. Do I mean, we, it's really hard to know if uh, what's going to happen. <clears throat> I think... Um, when you think about Utah, it's really Pacific Core, right, is the parent company. Rocky Mountain Power is the subsidiary in Utah. Uh, Pacific Core is actually headquartered in Oregon. Oregon, yeah. There's a ton of Oregon wildfires that happened, and the same thing that happened in California. I think trying to bear the burden of that amount of infrastructure um, when a tree blows on a line and causes billions of dollars worth of damage, I think is hard to justify staying a regulated utility um, and not... Um, deregulating, creating virtual power plants, and then creating those that infrastructure more local. Right now, it's it's carrying it across the Western interconnect, and that's um, it's a Herculean task, which Rocky Mountain Power and Pacific Core have done brilliantly. But it kind of is unfair to large scale utility to support that infrastructure when you know a tree blows on a line and they are held accountable to, you know, I don't know how much it is, probably thirty forty billion dollars of. Of cost. That's why a few years ago there was that big lawsuit about putting power back on the grid and not getting a direct offset of the cost. Yeah. Because they have all of that other kind of infrastructure costs associated with providing the power. It's not just the cost of the power. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, I I mean, it is the the coolest time in the entire world uh, to be working on a company like Taurus right now. Because we had the industrial revolution, we have like basically the electrification revolution, and that is happening like right this second. Um, we're kind of like right at Mavericks, like right at the top of the wave, um, and we're we're kind of sitting at the center of that electrification journey, um, which is which is super fun. It's a really it's a really tough problem to solve. It is the hardest problem, I think, our team, me personally, we have ever ever worked on, uh, and we've worked on some really tough stuff as a team. But this this is this is super hard. Like you said, right time, right place, right, and that's how a lot of times yeah. things big things happen. Yeah, it's it's exactly right. Yeah, big swing. So, but there's 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 a lot of a lot of moments. is really tough. It's, I want to go back. Yeah, uh, to <laughs> I like, too. I have so many questions. Yeah, to how yeah. you got this started, but but with tour specifically, are you guys focused on the residential yeah. side? You are. So so we we think about it. Um, this is a good question, and I love this question. Because it's one community, three sectors. That's the way I want people's mental model to think about this. So we all live in this community, and we all live on these lines and poles. If I could take you up to the East Bench, most of your listeners, if they're you know outside of the state of Utah, don't understand what the East Bench. But if you can get to an elevated place and you just look across the valley and you look at all those connected lines and poles, that is just one giant connected ecosystem of storage and management potential. And actually, everything that lives in those lines and poles today, right now, actually could solve most of the grid resilience issues we have if we just understood 
that if we put energy storage and we put energy management, so we knew how to load shift that power around to those different lines and poles, we could actually expand the grid substantially. Like nine gigawatts on the Wasatch Front, we could probably expand across 500,000 houses just because of connected lines and poles. And you think about electric vehicle adoption rate that's coming into the state right now, that's a huge issue. If you and I are on one line or pole and there's five kilowatt transformers or 10 kilowatt transformers, one vehicle plugged in like a Tesla is 10,000 watts, right? So that's a 10 kW transformer. Well, if you have five customers that are only on five, like it's over, right? You have a brownout or a blackout, you have grid instability. And that's why they're having a lot of those in California, yeah. right? And, so that, and that's what's happening, right? Is that, is that the infrastructure is, is old, it's 40 mm -hmm. years old, and we need to upgrade literal hardware out there. And we need to manufacture, design, and engineer. There's lots of companies that can, you know, th that are built right now that can solve the grid resilience issue. Um, so does deregulation help that issue as well? Yeah. Or? So, I, well, I mean, again, Utah, I give a lot of credit to Rocky Mountain Power because they, they're pretty progressive. They kind of saw this coming almost 10 years ago. So there was a project between Rocky Mountain Power, Soleil Lofts, and Sonnen Battery Company. And they did kind of one of America's first virtual power plants. And Soleil Lofts is a, a virtual power plant that load shifts and uses all those batteries at Soleil Lofts to distribute power in the region around it. It's called Location-Based Management Protocol. And so they're, they're actually distributing all of that stored energy in Soleil Lofts from this massive apartment complex to help support all of the areas around it. And that was, you know, that, that came out of, a, his name is Bill Como uh, and the Sonin team uh, at Rocky Mountain Power really kind of forged the prototype of what it could look like. There was another one done, Mary Powell, actually the CEO of Sunrun, she was um, on another one out on the East Coast. And they kind of showed like the world, hey, like this is coming, we need to get here sooner than later, else we're gonna have some pretty big uh, instability issues. On top of that, well, just, and they wanted to keep themselves relevant too. Right? I think so too. Yeah, I mean, I Rocky Mountain Power. I don't think, um, and this is all like Nate's point of view. I have no idea why they probably wanted to do this. I I actually don't fundamentally understand, but the demonstration that it could be done, which is working with a private sector company on a publicly regulated utility to create grid resilience and stabilization, scientifically is amazing. I mean, it's a really cool thing to watch happen. Uh, and so if homeowners and businesses understood they could be a really good steward, a good community member at a pretty steep discount that eventually once it's deregulated could make profit off it. Um, I think it's, I think it's a, a pretty worthwhile cause. I, I always, I mean, this is, <laughs> we're learning so much and for, you know, the audience that maybe is not into the electrical grid and, and yeah. some of those challenges, this <laughs> is maybe not be quite as interesting, but I'm fascinated because what I'm learning here is that, I mean, look what the private sector can do versus government regulation, right? Yeah. And there's always a place for that, but I just love the innovation that happens when you get government out of the way. Yeah. And, mo and more times than not, right? Yeah. So when, I when I started Taurus, it was like, you guys will giggle, but like it was youth against establishment. I actually started with like private sector, entrepreneur, I'm going to destroy like large scale utility. Oh man! When did this uh, thought? Three years ago, four years ago, is the dumbest thought I could have had. Because the second I went for it, and then you see the the complexity of the problem and the scale, um, the last mile, like the last mile complexity, um, you have to have large scale utility working for with you. 
Um, and, and frankly, what's really kind of the coolest thing is the, I always love the nuances of what keeps our grid up. And really you guys, like a lot of that is like you have fourth generation line workers, utility workers that know the nuances of frequency regulation and demand response and the stuff called Voltvar, like all these nerdy things that they fully understand the complexity on and they're keeping our grid up because of their tribal knowledge that's been passed through generations and like sits in these, in these companies. And, you know, when we build our business, we have no knowledge whatsoever. And then you go down, you try and connect like a tourist station to the grid. You don't understand that you need to set an inverter to low voltage ride through. I'm like, well, I don't even know what low voltage ride through is. I don't understand how the grid at a kindergarten level even works. <laughs> I don't even understand how it works. And so, you know, when you start talking to large scale utility partners, they start educating you and not from uh, a rude way. It's like, hey, Nate, we understand that you want to help. We want you to help. But you also need to understand um, the complexity here. Just a really big well, problem. starting point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I'll give the listeners one cool fun fact, which you'll love. So this is one of the aha moments. So if you look at a coal plant today, a coal plant um, actually turns a turbine engine. A, like there's a steam turbine engine. Okay. And that, that uses a motor generator. And that motor generator spins at 60 hertz. And so the grid, right, requires 60 hertz of frequency. But that is completely predicated on the fact that when you burn coal to a steam, like a steam engine, to the motor generator, that motor generator is what's creating the frequency. And, that, and the grid can only flex plus or minus 1% or you have a brownout or a blackout. So if you think about how complex yet how simple that innovation is. It has to be very consistent and steady. That's exactly right. Wow, interesting. So frequency regulation. So the thing that happened in California, I mean, there's a lot of things, but one cool fun fact in the context for us was that when you have AC grid-tied inverters, so solar inverters connected to the grid that don't have low-voltage ride-through, that aren't sensing 60 hertz, you end up creating a much worse problem because those inverters, right, are connected to utility and when you're producing solar, you're sending all that power back to the grid to help it, right? To help communities decarbonize, which is what California's goal was. Well, when you have instability of frequency, what happens is those inverters are like, oh no, there's instability, and they shut off. Well, when they shut off, that actually creates more instability. And so when you have thousands of homes shutting their inverters off because of frequency instability, you create not a brownout, then you go to a full blackout. And then you have to do what's called a black start, trying to get 60 hertz back up on the grid. And that takes, in Texas, they were four minutes away from a blackout, from a black start event. And that is, it probably would have taken them two to three months to get the grid all the way back up again at 60 hertz. And so it is, it is like a really cool scientific feat, that large scale utility. I am so excited about virtual power plants, but we had to do a lot more work to make our products worthy of the grid. Um, and I'll put it that way, like to, to build a product that could be worthy to the grid um, and its complexity was, was where we spent almost all of our time in R&D. Where did this like, what did you call it? Aha moment. Youth against establishment. Oh yeah. yeah. Where did you get that? Like <clears throat> that mentality and, and why did you choose this issue as the uh -huh. one you wanted to solve? Yeah. So, so, my entire career has always been like 
mission and vision. Um, and I'm talking about mission aligned to core values. If you looked at the first company that I started, Paramed, Paramed was built. So I was a paramedic. When did um, you build that one? So that was, um, so I, I created the DCS and the ambulance caught all these products in 1998, formally kind of raised capital, uh, angel investors, no series A round in Utah. I mean, I was like, I literally was 25000 $50,000 a handshake at a time telling angels, I promise I'll give you your money back at like 25 years old. And so, so you started the entrepreneurship <clears throat> journey a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, for sure. So um, so when I sold the first company, though, Paramed, it was because I was a paramedic um, having to lift and lower and carry patients. So it's all about patient transport equipment for them. And um, I, I learned, a, like, I learned a lot. There's, there's a lot of things I learned on my first entrepreneurial journey. Um, I learned hardware, firmware, and software on that journey. I learned manufactured scale. When I sold Paramed to Striker, Striker Medical was a million square feet of manufacturing, 8,000 employees. We're about 350 employees. Um, so that, that, and that was publicly traded. So like that leap for me was just, it was... Um, I gave you some street cred. Yeah, well, yeah, and I got broke off. I mean, I just, I mean, it was a really, really hard lesson to learn just on how to manage human beings, how to high and fire, how to grow and scale, how to produce a repeatable product. Um, you know, we're in North America only. When you go to Stryker, you're in 121 countries. You know, you're you're printing like 12,000 very highly sophisticated class two medical devices at massive scale. And and you learn a lot about, you know, how you show up as a manager, how, how you show up in, in developing products at massive scale. Um, you know, when you travel to different countries, you don't use English, like you use pictograms. Um, and that's just more about, consistency of communicating the job of your product uh, versus using the spoken word to do it. Uh, just simple things that you just, you know, naturally as a North American product developer, inventor, you're like, well, it, it should be built this way. Well, as soon as you land, you know, in the middle of a foreign country with your U.S. North American instruction book, uh, that, that goes out the window pretty quick. So, okay, so we got to take some steps back here, Nate. So you yep. you built this awesome company in the paramedic space. Yeah. Great exit, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's fun, yeah. And then you've built how many more companies since then? Yeah, so um, after that... <laughs> <laughs> We're both just like, <laughs> mind's blown. Yeah. I well, you, did you start out as a paramedic? Like, that's yeah. what you you just decided to go that route to begin with, and then you decided to start this... Yeah, so device. So the the deal was is if you and I were a partner like together, we'll, we'll go here and I promise I'll give you the I'll give you the history. No, it's fine. Yeah, I know we, we're all over the pace. We can start this podcast. It's, over no, if it's you great. Want to. This is perfect. <laughs> we this can is start way over. Yeah, we're taking the true entrepreneur's Listen, journey. We, we're just we don't have a script. We, we just yeah. like to like follow along it's and free free flow. Yeah, I like it. So the the deal is um, the problem that needed to be solved is that when you and I would get into the middle, like get into an ambulance. You go on, you know, six to 12 calls per day. Healthy people don't generally call 911, and they're in very difficult locations, um, usually to transport them. And so it's just a repeatable injury to people's backs. So lifting and lowering injuries in fire and EMS were at an all-time high. And I had... For lifting the gurney. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So you lift from 13 inches, you know, from the ground to 13 inches, 13 to 39 inches. And, And you do that multiple times like when you arrive on scene you pull your cot out right when you get a patient you lift and lower when you pull the patient out of the ambulance you lift and lower when you get into the hospital you lift and lower when you 
I mean, if you just think about the fatiguing of that over and over and over again, most of fire and EMS workers were going to light duty because of back injuries because of herniated discs. And so, um, and that's and were, exacerbate, <clears throat> exacerbated when it's, you know, a heavier individual. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and generally so, right. Um, like, like I said, like a lot of healthy folks, uh, don't, don't call 911. Um, long story short is there was a whole series of products that I invented through. So I, I invented a new product every year for five years and it was all in the patient transport industry. So one was a hospital evacuation sled called Paraslide. That's in 70% of the hospitals in the United States, probably 60% in the world. The second one was a powered ambulance cot. A third one was a powered stair chair. Uh, one was a manual and also a stair chair to, to take people up and down flights of stairs at the touch of a button. Um, and that's because that's where a lot of our injuries were happening. When we were trained, you take this, nobody can see this, but there's a chair in here. And you would take a patient, put them on a chair, and you'd be at the top of this chair. I'd be at the bottom of the chair. And that's how you take people down flights of stairs. We still do that today, but the stair chair dramatically changed the game because we put tracks on the back of that chair. So basically, they just very comfortably rode down uh, those flights of stairs but didn't injure our backs. And so um, we launched a new product every year for five years. Our company got bought um, by Stryker Medical, and then I ran Global R&D for those guys, uh, the EMS division. And that was an awesome experience for me. It was really, really difficult. Uh, people who are listening who know this story well, you know, I started out like 128 pounds. When I left Stryker, I was 317. Uh, it was just the amount of stress. Um, learning how to develop products as a paramedic, you wanted to help save people's lives and save backs. But when you scale products, inherently a lot of um, you know, field operations and deployments go wrong. And I carry those really personally. Um, and so, and as it, it was a maturity issue for me, like not to, you know, not to understand that humans are humans. And when you deploy, you know, a lot of product across a large, large segment, you know, people, people use products different ways than you intended. And, um, and so it took me a long time to kind of like, like fully settle, um, you know, my, myself with, with those things. Then the second company, how did you overcome that? Uh, because that may be some issues that others are dealing with too. That's yeah, maybe. Kind of thing. So I, I actually, I had a really, um, I had kind of a gift from a person that's just totally unexpected. His name was Dan Martz. He was almost 60 years old and he was a road biker. And uh, I was, I was 300 plus pounds. I bought a road bike. I, oh, by the way, I moved to Michigan. So our whole family had moved to Michigan. So Sarah's my wife. Should have said this at the beginning. I have four boys. Shout out I, to Sarah. Sarah. And I have four sons. Awesome. <clears throat> Ryder, was, what to what, Ryder was born in Michigan. And they're all the way, they all turn an age in March, but it's like 2018, 16, and then 14. Got it. So yeah, uh, Av and Eli Miles Ryder, they're the center of our life. But long story short is Dan Martz, um, I met him through a uh, I don't know how I met him. I met him through either like a construction or like a, I have no idea how I met Dan, but I can't even remember. But he, he was the one who said, hey, you should come on a ride with us. And I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm 300 pounds. Like, I don't even know. And sure enough, I bought a, a road bike and I had to sign a waiver um, that the bike was not rated for my weight. It was actually super embarrassing. Um, and I'm like, that's fine. So I signed this waiver. And I got on this road bike with Dan and I went like 22 or 23 miles. I couldn't walk for like three or four days, but I probably put more tears over the, that, that top tube on that ride with Dan, just talking to him about like what had happened the last 10 years. 
I was like, this is, this is, this is my path. Like this, this is how I'm going to end up, you know, overcoming like a lot of the stuff that I've been feeling. And the guy stayed so committed. I mean, we probably rode five days a week together. So it was the exercise and and the therapeutic nature of the exercise, but also talking it through. It was just him asking me questions. Huh? I mean, it was just, so everyone probably needs someone like a Dan. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. It was, he was the right person that came into my life at that time. Um, yeah, he was, he was a, he was a huge help. He was, he was an absolutely huge help. Another person that you'll find just a a crazy coincidence. Some people, some listeners will know this person. So Josh Little, um, he started volley. He, uh, when I moved to Michigan, you guys (laughs) like it just randomly about a mile down this random road in Michigan, was Josh Little's family. And he lives in Utah. He's a Utah entrepreneur. He's built lots of businesses and sold them. He had launched Volley and stuff. We need to get Josh on the podcast. Yeah, you do. Uh, Josh is amazing. So we randomly met him, and uh, we were we were coming back from this entrepreneurial event in Detroit. It was called Funded by Night. It was amazing. But he, he um, I was talking to him about like everything that I had gone through. Yeah, and on the right-hand side of the road, he, he just said, hey, man, like, look, you're on the entrepreneurial cliff. He's like, you, you think the only way out of this is to jump. And he's like, and all you have to do is just turn 180 degrees and it's flat land the other way. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm serious. He's like, let's just walk through it. Like, if you don't want to work at Stryker anymore, quit. He's like, what, like what's, what's holding you there? Like, if you don't enjoy, you know, what you're doing, then quit. He's like, you have the resources, you know, you've rung the bell, you've had the acquisition, like, man, like start over. And I think maybe three weeks after that, I resigned. <laughs> Had that thought just never occurred to never. you? Never. I was just committed. Like I was just, I'm like, look, I sold this company. I have, and I'd worked there for years, right? I'm like, I have to see the integration. I have to see the products be successful. But I was miserable. Because um, you were working for someone doing it. It's, it's, it's just the culture. Like the culture is totally different to an entrepreneur. I mean, this is a publicly traded company 16 decentralized divisions. I think there were 9 billion in revenue. Um, The extended leadership team was 64 people. I'm like, dude, I mean, this company was a monster. And they wore, um, no, no, I was like a hoodie, you know, and flip-flops guy. What are you wearing right now? And this is, yeah, and and this was like, Nate. (laughs) Yeah, and this was like a a, Show up in a suit and tie. It was like, it was like, and I would get ridiculed all the time for like what I wore. And I'm like, man, this is a really tough environment. Um, you know, to, to innovate and to be a part of and, and work in. But you know what's so funny? is like it was the biggest growth period in my entire life. I learned so much about myself and how to run and operate a business at like small scale and massive scale all in one fell swoop. It was really, it was really amazing. Very cool. So you left and then what? Then you decided... <clears throat> How did you decide what your next yeah, so kind of quick, thing so was? So quickly, so I, I, I vowed never to get into medical devices ever again. Um, I started a company called Brightface, and it built a company called Cycleface that I sold to Strava. And then the next uh, venture after that is I ended Health-related up... Health-related apps, it sounds like. Yeah, right? well, so it's because I was into cycling. Mm-hmm. And so Eat, Move, Sleep, Mission, Vision, like super aligned on healthy, like because of mental health issues and all that stuff, yeah. And then the next um, iteration was I ended up working at OC Tanner... And it was a really, so that's how I met Gilbert Lee. If you guys don't know Gil, Gil's amazing. He's my co-founder at Taurus. And uh, we had a really fun run. We launched Welby, Grazi, and Moments. So three products in like under 18 months there. 
And then I left and then went to Pluralsight employee number 96 uh, there. And I helped, um, you know, Aaron and the broader team there uh, take that company public. So as a Section 16 officer, uh, my team at that time was about nine. When I left, we were like 850 folks-ish. Equity stake, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. It was a, it was a great run for everyone at Taurus. Aaron did great on structuring the business um, and did a really great job on just the culture and the mission, the vision. Um, amazing, amazing company. I, I absolutely loved uh, the team and the time uh, at that place. And then I uh, resigned. That was at six, about six and a half years, six years or so. Kind of chilled out, took a little break, then started Taurus. Um, and this really is, for the last 20 years, this is kind of all the teams that we worked together with for the last 20 years, all built at one company here in Utah to go solve what I feel like is like the last mile of the hardest problem for society, which is trying to figure out how to, you know, electrify, uh, decarbonize, expand grid resilience, um, you know, not just for the United States, but for, for societies. A big piece of this for Gil and me is just like marginalized communities are, are huge. Gil was born and raised in the Philippines. He was an immigrant, a non-English speaking immigrant to our country. If you look at like a single tourist station, um, like a flywheel energy storage device can power up to 30 homes, just like one energy storage device. And I think maybe the last plug just on like, you know, manufacturing in the United States. The reason why this was super important for, for us is six and a half percent of energy storage batteries are manufactured in the U.S. And so, you know, for the last two decades, we've, we've given away a lot of our core competency as a manufacturer and really, it's all about building manufacturing um, and the skill set and the talent um, back in the United States. And so we have a huge passion around doing that right now. It's an incredible journey. I'm blown away. Yeah, that's awesome. Are Thanks. you self-funding then, tourists right now? You <clears> and no, Gil? we we raised. Yeah, you raised. We, well, Gil and we, Gil and I, we put we we put the kind of the initial tranche in to get the the seed pro- money. Yeah, yeah, to get the to get the product to the right stage, and then we did we did two rounds. Um, we did two safe notes. Uh, and and still are are just clicking along. Good for you. Yeah. Revenue positive at this point. Yeah. So that th- this will be the first year. It's not cash flow positive, but we we created our first um, big chunk of revenue this last year. Ne- in twenty three, right? In twenty three, yeah. yeah. This last year, you guys it, just launched in the summertime, right? We did. Yeah. Yeah. We ended the year great. Um, probably right where I expected us. Honestly, like bookings and billings numbers, we ended in a great spot. And twenty uh, four is big year. We signed a glo- like a, a master service agreement with uh, Energy Vivint for the deployment of tourist stations, and they have this entire GTM strategy uh, and just great partnership, like kind of the perfect partnership because NRG is an energy company, mm-hmm. right, that bought Vivint, which was a consumer goods company. And so they understand consumer and their go-to-market very well. And then Energy, like a large publicly traded energy company, understands large-scale utility. And really like putting both of those partnerships together for us is it's a great match. It is amazing. Yeah, it is absolutely awesome. So Nate, just to wrap up, what, what I mean, <clears throat> out of this entire journey and all the cool things you've discussed about the grid and, and, um, you know, paramedic, you know, the industry there. And I mean, you've gone through so many different things, right. Um, and it sounds like you've been pretty successful in all of them. What, what advice would you give to our audience on entrepreneurship or leadership or anything? What, what is your biggest piece of advice you'd give people? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, so I mean, on the outside, the resume looks um, polished or successful. Um, that <clears throat> kind of pales 
I mean, even 23, I could, I could chalk up 23 as the hardest year I've ever had as an entrepreneur, the most challenged I, I've ever been. Um, professionally, personally, technically, um, I mean, it's, it, it is, is 20, 2023 is a hard, hard year. Um, at the end of the day, though, and, and this is kind of my, you know, my mantra is it's companies are people. And, and, and I will tell you, like, you cannot take enough time to spend with your teams um, and really talk to your teams. Like, you know, product market fit, you know, a market moves like outside of our control. And the, the goal is to build a company with people for products and solutions that fit into a market that's ever evolving. And at the end of the day, like the pace, the performance, the experience, everything that you have when you build something as an entrepreneur comes from the talent that you have within the four walls. So you have to spend a lot of your time with people. Um, and you just, you, you can't uh, undervalue it enough, especially in war times. You know, if, if it's a really hard year, I mean, double down, like you want to double down on teams uh, and, and you got to make really tough decisions. And I wouldn't, if, if your gut is telling you as an entrepreneur that this decision, just do it. Um, I know it's hard, but mostly for both parties, it, it's probably, it's probably the right thing for both folks. Um, you know. So don't put off those hard decisions. Yeah. I, um, the. One question I have, and I know that there's been a few entrepreneurs that have been on the podcast um, that have been through a similar situation where they either sold a product or they went from being an entrepreneur to working in a big organization. Yeah. Um, looking back at that time, and I know you you left because you felt like you weren't thriving there. <laughs> you had other missions or goals that you needed to achieve. Yeah. Um, but do you have any like advice for somebody that's in that role right now and is maybe struggling with that, like... I, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I also like want to see this kind of goal through to yeah. the end. Oh man. Um, did you learn anything along the way or you're like, Hey, you need to jump. <laughs> yeah. I, so this was, this was probably one of the, uh, well, one of the things that that's really stuck in my head. So Bob Adams was the head of sales, global sales for striker. Um, and, you know, they had, in the, in the powered ambulance caught world, I mean, they really went from like in 1998 to kind of 2005, they stole like 70% market share from Ferno. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was the right product, the right market, right time, great sales leadership, good engineering teams. And when I sold my company to Striker, maybe the first three or four weeks, probably a month after I'd been there. I kind of came in with the same mentality that I had when I ran Paramed, which is, um, you know, scraping together payrolls and, you know, op income and CapEx and free cash flow to build and produce more inventory, you know, to produce more hardware for the market. I mean, it was fight or flight. Like, I mean, you were in survival. It felt like survival mode all of the time. And so you were just very aggressively pushing the envelope as much as you could to try and make an impact not only for society, but also for the business and the team members, employees. And Bob, I, remember, I will never forget this. He put his arm around me as I was walking down to the lunchroom at Stryker. By the way, side note, we should talk about later, but why did they put lunchrooms in, in corporate offices or buildings? <laughs> it's because they never wanted me to leave. And that was like an aha moment. I'm like, oh, man, come on, dude. Like, I got I to gotta get out of the building. Keep you there on site, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So he kind of put his arm around me and he's like, hey, Nate. And I think he said like, hey, Walking Shaw. 
Um, it was like a very football driven culture. Like the CEO of that company was a, like a ball state quarterback. No, it was Bob. Bob was a ball state quarterback. He was a middle linebacker ended up playing for Indianapolis Colts. Um, very so, cool. So yeah, culturally, like it was, it was a very interesting, um, setup. But yeah, I remember, also you have a really cool last name, like walking Shaw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so he's put, he put his arm around me and he's like, Hey man, I got to tell you something. I said, like, he's like, you want to be careful how much you give this place. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, cause it'll take everything you give it. And I was like, whoa, what does that mean? And I, I kind of was the first time of like, hey, you're working too hard. Like, it doesn't really matter how much you put in. Like, this machine that you're in is billions of dollars, you know, 13,000 employees. And like, the level of effort you're putting into this place, I'm not sure if you're going to get the kind of the, the reaped rewards that you've gotten at this other company that you've worked at. And I, and I was like, that took me a long time to process and fully understand. About a year and a year and a half after that, not that it was like I was an eight to five guy, but it was, I mean, I, at Paramed, even tourists, right? And it's 80 to 100 hour weeks. It does not matter. Like you are all in 100% committed. It is 80 to 100 hours. That's all you're given this thing. You don't sleep, you don't break, you put it in there. And, um, you know, there I was like, oh man, this is pretty nice. This is a work-life balance. I still get paid. Everyone else is still going to get paid. Products are still going to ship out the door. Not my problem. In fact, they have a whole like operations group that's just responsible. Thousands of employees that are going to ship product. But for us, I mean, it's a team of like 350 and, you know, you can sink a hundred people into a manufacturing world to make sure you're shipping product, but you got to check the floor, you know, to make sure there's no ship holds. It's class two medical device. You're just stressing about it all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was a big learned experience for me, for sure. So cool, Nate. Hey, this has been really fun to have you on the Midnight Thunders podcast today. Yeah. How do people find you or learn more about what you're doing? I have, I mean, just Twitter. Or, well, it's it's X now, um, but it's just N Walking Shot. I, I don't. I, you can look me up, you know, on YouTube or whatever. And Taurus is there yeah. online? Yeah, Taurus. Yeah, yeah, Taurus. We'd love more customers at Taurus, like um, yeah, Taurus.co. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Nate. This has been fun. Good yeah, luck with fun. everything. Yeah, fun hanging out for sure. The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And Rev Road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.